Hello, I'm Jennifer. And I'm Doug. And welcome back to the Crew Japan Podcast, a weekly podcast where we take you on audio journeys through Japanese culture. Welcome back to our podcast. Today we're going to explore the world of Japanese translation and localization. If you're learning Japanese and wondering what you're going to actually do with it, translation may be one of the many professions that uses Japanese, especially if your goal is to have an understanding of higher level Japanese and its application. In this episode, we'll be interviewing translator and localization director for a gaming industry, Jen O'Donnell. She'll be giving us her experience in the industry and how and what she did to get there. This is a valuable opportunity that you don't want to miss. All right, so Doug, we are here today to talk about translation.、Um, do you know what translation is? Like, I, I would assume you know, like, the basics of. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand, like, the concept of, like, just what translation is and what the work would entail in a very high level.、Um, I, you know, I've attempted to translate books、um, on my own. Uh, not a lot in very small quantity、um, when I was learning Japanese in, in like school.、Um, I would try to take some of the stuff and I struggled mightily with it because <laughs> it was、um, very much more、uh, beyond my skill set and level at that point in time. But you know, I know just it's taking it from language A, in this case Japanese, into language B, which would be English. But、uh, you know, that's that, that up until our interview, you know, I, I had an idea.、Um, A, a very high level, but just in general, I, I struggle with the, the nuance that comes along with、uh, translation work. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of have the same experience as you, especially as like the nerd that I am. You know,、um, I read a lot of manga, I watch a lot of anime, and I play a lot of video games. And a lot of that has to do with translation. You know, it comes from Japan and it comes over here. And kind of like you, Um, you know, when I was actively studying, I remember I was having a study session with one of my friends. We would meet every Wednesday. And one of the things that we did to kind of like just, you know, get into a more fun pattern of studying is we took one of my Japanese manga that I had like multiple copies of, and we would try to translate it into English. And, you know, It's so hard when you're not used to like translating because I found myself translating the Japanese directly into、yeah. the English. So then it came out wonky. So I had to translate that English into like my English <laughs> longer than it should have taken. And so, you know, I give credit to translators, they work their butts off and they deserve so much credit that they probably don't get. <laughs> Little did you know you were partaking in localization, right? <laughs> Without even knowing it.、Um, yeah, th- that's, that's one thing I, I, I struggle with too when I was doing my like, you know, impromptu stuff.、Um, I would, like, I had, like, I had, I think in college, I had a, little, a couple manga that I would pick up, just something simple.、Um, not simple. It was definitely not simple, but、uh, something that I had interest in the story.、Mm-hmm. I was familiar with the English version of the story and I wanted to t- try it. And take a stab at making it and、like, turning into my English.、Um, but yeah, I did the same thing where I was just 
direct um direct translation uh it wasn't very free-flowing and the final product is very much rigid yeah and it's 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 an art because you need to not only master the understanding of what it means in japanese but also need to have a way of communicating it in like common vernacular of english uh that's that's where i think having a background also in english literature or I mean, not literature, but composition mm-hmm. helps with with that kind of work because you need to be a master of not only understanding a language, but kind of manipulating it into sounding something very, very fluid yeah, exactly. and natural. Exactly. Because I also used to do it because my friend and I we would get bored constantly. So we would like always change things up. And we also did song lyrics. We would print out Japanese song lyrics and try to translate it. But whoo, that is a different beast in itself. <laughs> Yeah, I I never like song lyrics are weird because when you're reading or if you watch like a like a, a theme or for a TV show where they're translating the lyrics or or something where there's maybe a music video and there's lyrics at the bottom in English and you're reading it but the you're listening and the words aren't matching up with the words that are showing up in the written phrase because it's just the timing of Yeah. and the sentence structure and the in in the the word structure of those songs and how they may phrase it you know in english you may do in phrases or whatever yeah but same thing in japanese but just maybe jumbled up differently but it doesn't work like in english when you directly translate it doesn't flow yeah to the song or whatever so you have to kind of adapt and it's it's yeah it's a challenge It, it really is an art form i would almost say um to be able to do this i'll agree with that yeah i i think it is an art form and you know when you pick up, say, a video game, um, you know, you might be thinking about the graphics, you might be thinking about the voice acting, you might be thinking about gameplay, but what you should really be thinking about, especially if you do the original voice acting, is those translations that they give you. You know, I, I think it's such an underrated profession, and it takes so much skill to do something like that um so next time you pick up a video game you better you know think think someone for those translations <laughs> yeah there's a lot of legwork that goes in behind the scenes that we'll we'll find out shortly um through our conversation with jen jennifer <laughs> which one do we pick for the interview <laughs> you'll find that out because we have jennifer from our podcast yeah and then we have jennifer that we're going to interview and then they assign me ahead of the interview I'm Jen and I'm Jennifer and I definitely messed it up at least once. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we edited that out or not. I can't remember, but yeah. Um, but yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll find that out. It's, it's something where um, really there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that you don't realize. And again, the, the whole localization piece too, it, whereas it's not just translating it word to word, you know, sentence to sentence, but it's also making it flow and sound more natural. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it's such a cool, um, a cool job to have because you really are like your work is going to impact the the world's enjoyment yeah. of that game or that book or that movie or whatever. It's going to impact their their entertainment value. Um, so you really have a very large role, whether you want to believe so or not, as a, a translator, a localizer um, in there. Yeah, you you need to know Japanese. Yeah, yeah, you could you could fly by. You know, you can cut some corners, I guess. You can find <laughs> out like what you can you can shave off things and use context uh, clues to 
to kind of round out things. But yeah, you need to have a really strong grasp. Um, and, and one thing we'll touch on too in the interview very briefly, uh, maybe not very briefly, but we'll touch on it, um, is the difference between interpretation and translation. Because mm. um, I, I would sometimes unintentionally use them interchangeably when they're very much very different. <laughs> um, whereas I feel like translation is more of a physical, tangible, visual um, aspect to that, that language conversion. Whereas interpretation is more on the fly, um, yeah. you know, vocal, audio, audio-esque version of, of that same type of work. But you're not only just doing it from one language to another, you're doing it back and forth, potentially, yeah. depending on the, on the gig. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Okay, so this is probably going to be very focused on video games. I could tell this episode will be. But, you know, if you do watch, I don't know, E3 or something of like some kind of gaming conference and, you know, let's say Nintendo comes on and they have, you know, their spotlight of what's coming out, you know, they always have an interpreter yeah. right there. And that's that's kind of you see. you see, I mean, they speak Japanese and an interpreter's like, all right, so this is what he said. And like, yeah, you just got to go back and forth on the spot. Yeah. Um, and I always, I do wonder uh, what it's like to be one of those interpreters that is doing like conventions where you get some weird ass questions from guests that are going to live <laughs> where it's just really awkward. And you're like, wait, can you say that again? Wait. And then you have to think <laughs> about it because you're never expecting some of these questions. Like, what size is your underwear? Or, you know, like maybe not that, but you know, some, some really like off the wall thing that's completely off the topic. And that, that some of, I've been to some conventions, a variety of conventions, and I know some of those panels can get a little, a little loose in terms yeah. of what kind of questions are asked. Um, so, you know, I, I think that you have to be really flexible and willing to <laughs> kind of put yourself on this. You are on the spot. Yeah, you definitely translation because then you have to bridge the gap and maybe smooth over some of the 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 context from the initial language to the other um to yeah. maybe make it less offensive or whatever it may be. Yeah. So our interview today is with Jen O'Donnell. I met Jen early in my freelancing uh career and my blogging. Um and you know, she was a blogger at the time and I was a blogger and a viewer who knew both of us introduced us together and was like, hey, you should, you know, meet Jen. You know, she loves Japan, too. She studies Japanese. So I'm like, OK, you know, I'll reach out. So I reach out and we clicked immediately. Our friendship was just right there. And we collaborated like several times on our blogs. Um, and, you know, she eventually stopped blogging um, as much as um, she used to. But um, I made sure to stay in touch with her, made sure to keep up with, you know, all the exciting things that she was doing in translation, because that's just what she was passionate about. And, um, you know, ever since, you know, I just keep on following her and she is where she is today. Like I said, um, she does localization now. And I thought she was just going to be a really good guest for this kind of episode. So without further ado, let's go to the interview. All right, so we are here with uh, Jen O'Donnell today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? 
Good. Yes. Okay. I'm glad we could have you today on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, no, no problem. Um, you and I kind of go way back uh, with our own blogging about Japan. Um, so I knew that you would be really good for this episode. Th thank you again for joining us. Um, but what we like to do usually with our guests is give them an opportunity to introduce themselves um you know give a give a little bit of a background you don't have to go full full autobiography or anything like that but whatever you you know if you want to just introduce yourself for those who may not be familiar with you and your work sure um my name's jen o'donnell i'm a japanese english translator and a localization director uh working for a video game company in japan i also blog on the side about learning japanese and about translation in general and besides that just probably spend way too much time reading manga books and playing games i can i can relate with the game thing i, I don't do <laughs> manga as much i do read a little bit of one piece here and there whenever i have a chance but uh but yeah i i wish i could read a little bit more <laughs> so um another question we ask our guests uh when they come on we are we are a new orleans based podcast uh for the most part and um what we like to ask our guests is if they've had a connection to new orleans in the past um, have you been before? And if you have, what is your fondest or funniest or most unique memory? But if you haven't, um, when someone says the name New Orleans, what is the first thing that you think of? So because I'm British, I've never actually been to New Orleans <gasps> and pronounce it differently. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when people say New Orleans, I actually think of the Princess and the Frog, ah, the Disney movie. Yeah. Oh. Okay, that's the first thing that we've ever heard that like someone say that. No one's ever said the movie yet. Usually it's Mardi Gras or Bourbon Street or Jazz. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, maybe, maybe it's because I'm British, so we don't have yeah. the New Orleans culture. So the only exposure I've ever got was through media, which is like Princess and the Frog or cool. the movie Chef. Um, I know about it. Um, my spouse's mom went to university there. She lived there for a little bit, so... That's the extent of my knowledge. Hey, the Disney fan in me is very, very happy about your response. <laughs> um, now to get down to uh, the main content of our podcast, and um, we want to start this off by kind of giving our listeners a sense of how you even started with like why Japan you know, what led to your interest in Japan and um, eventually your, you know, work experience in Japan. Uh, do you have longer than an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Give it your best yeah. shot. Take as much time as you want. <laughs> Don't say that. That's a terrible idea. Um, I guess I guess it started when I was probably just before I turned 17. Um, a friend of mine was studying Japanese in what well, in the UK we call college, um, which is about high school age. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. Um, do you mind introducing me to your teacher? Um, partially because I was trying to impress her, but um, also partially because it was kind of, it was actually really cool. So I started learning Japanese with her teacher just an hour a week for like two years. And then she said, oh, I'm going to Japan and I get a discount if somebody comes with me. Do you want to come? So the two of us went to Japan and that's when I like actually really fell in love with Japan and the language because I studied in a language school for two months and worked on a farm for two months doing volunteer through WOOF, a worldwide organization for organic farms. And that just blew my mind. And I was like, this is amazing. And I love it. And I want to keep learning Japanese. Like up to that point, any hobby I picked up, I tend to drop after like two months. 
Um, but Japanese was one that I kept going for years, even though I was never really good at it. And so when I went to university, um, again, I, I, it was just a hobby. I wasn't really taking it seriously. So I thought, well, I'll, I don't really know what I want to do at university. But um, the, I guess, counsellor suggested, oh, social anthropology at this university has a year in Japan. I'm like, oh, that sounds perfect. I don't know what social anthropology is, but it sounds perfect. <laughs> um, and so I went to university. I studied abroad in Japan. And then at the end of my degree, I realized no one knows what social anthropology is. And it's not exactly marketable. Um, but Japanese is. So I figured I would use my Japanese. But I wasn't good enough to be a translator. I don't want to be a translator. I didn't want to be an English teacher either because I... In my stupid brain, I thought, oh, this will deter my English ability or my Japanese ability. And so I didn't apply for JET. I'm one of the few people who have never done JET. I've never taught English, even though it's a really good profession. Really, really good. It's a great entry um, point, right? A really great entry point. Yeah. So I kind of shot myself in the foot by not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you still got there. Yes, I did. Yeah. So um, because I figured, oh, I want to use it in a business setting, because obviously that's what adults do. That's what grownups do. And so I uh, came back to Japan and I studied for six months to pass the N2. I ended up getting a job at a company in America, in Michigan, that did system diagnostic tools for vehicles. And they're like, oh, we want to send someone to Japan. I'm like, this is perfect. It's business, it's professional, it's adult, and I'll end up in Japan. And I got to America and they said, yeah, we haven't actually got a, an office in Japan. Um, so we hope you can set one up. I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> like fresh out of university, no idea what I was doing. And it just, they didn't know what they were doing. And so the whole thing just fell through. And I was like, well, I've been here for a year. I haven't done anything I feel like I'm stagnating. I'm not in Japan. I'm not where I want to be. And that's when I started coming around to the idea of doing translation. But I didn't think, again, I didn't think I was good enough to be a translator. So I decided to, I thought, oh, well, you need education. So I took a master's degree in translation, which didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, got, I got my master's degree. I got a first class honors um, from SOAS in London, but it didn't really teach me how to translate. And so afterwards I had to relearn how to translate, how to market myself as a freelance translator. And then that kind of snowballed into everything else. Um, I guess I still never really had much confidence in myself as a translator and that I could actually do it. But then over the years, serendipity ended up working out and now I'm a translator and I work for a game company. It's a pretty incredible route that you took to get to Japan and, and to be where you are. Yeah, it, it was not conventional. <laughs> yeah, and especially for someone who, like you said in the beginning, like you didn't want to be a translator. No. <laughs> and now look at you, you're, yeah. you're, you're like, all I want to do is be a translator. Yes, I love, I love <laughs> translation so much. Yeah, so um, you kind of answered our next question already that we were going to ask. Um, but, uh, but I was going to say like, you know, the typical route, not I don't say typical, but like a very common route like you mentioned is the JET program. I was on the JET program for three years. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I have many friends that are still in Japan post-JET doing various types of jobs, whether still teaching English or working in as one was a lawyer and, the, you know, just various things. But, uh, you know, you went 
less you know the non-jet route which is much more difficult do you have any tips for folks that are trying to get into that trying to find a non-jet avenue to get into japan for a professional like in a professional setting it it is really difficult especially now with the whole situation where visas it's hard to get a visa sponsorship um honestly i i think one of the frustrating things is that it is a and there is an element of luck yeah, there really is. Um, but you can set yourself up to have a bit more luck by just networking. I mean, mm-hmm. it's obviously not going to pay off immediately. But the reason I ended up in Japan was I, because because I was marketing myself, I was learning about marketing myself as a translator. Uh, that's when I started blogging about translation and connecting with the wider community. And I think one day I just lamented on Twitter saying, oh, I really wish I was in Japan I was working in Japan but I kind of I haven't done it and I, but I'll get there eventually like in my mind I was like well my goal is to live in Japan in the next five years and a friend of mine um, contacted me he said hey this game company are looking for translators um, I think you should apply because you'd, you'd be a good fit I'm like oh okay well I mean it's probably never gonna go anywhere but it can't hurt and I applied and I went through the internet feed process and I ended up getting the job. And I turned to my spouse and was like, so uh, what do you think about living in Japan? <laughs> and he Sounds was like, great. Uh, yeah, sure, why not? Because <laughs> he's also a Japanese translator. He he translates manga and light novels. So okay. it's it was really easy for him because we were both freelancing at the time. And so I was like, well, yeah. I, have, I, I, I have a job now, so I guess we're moving to Japan. <laughs> Um, but it really was an element of luck having a friend introduce me and then obviously my own ability to get through the interview process. Yeah, I, I was actually going to um, bring up networking in a little bit later on. But since we're kind of on that topic, um, I, I actually listened to your episode of How to Japanese uh, podcast with Daniel Morales. I'm a good friend of his. He's from New Orleans as well. Oh, really? um, you know, we were on jet together in Fukushima, which is actually where I met him, ironically. What? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I met him there and I was like, oh, wait, you're from New Orleans? What? <laughs> so uh, we came, he came back and we were both on, we did the, the Jet Alumni group here for a bit. Um, so we became friends that way. And uh, I, I listened to the interview and it was a fantastic interview, by the way. Uh, oh, really, oh really, really, I was really worried about, I rambled too much. <laughs> no, it was great. It was really great. Um, but that you mentioned on the podcast as well, uh, you know, professional networking and uh, the importance of it. Now, how, I guess what are some good ways to um, to network? Because uh, a lot of people they may they may want to do this, but like you said, you started a blog. But mm-hmm. are there other ways to go about networking um, outside of maybe blogging? And I mean, there's LinkedIn too. But um, for for the for someone that's actually tapped into the localization and translation network, is there another avenue that people can take to uh, mm-hmm. go that route? So similarly, I thought. LinkedIn was the best way to go. Um, it's not. It's completely useless. It's not completely useless, but it wasn't exactly useful for me. <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started there. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think LinkedIn is good for proper adult professionals. <laughs> and, then, and then you have like this, the, the sphere of creative translation, especially Japanese to English, where a lot of people are like manga and anime. We're all a bunch of nerds and we're all a bunch of like big kids. So LinkedIn is not like the ideal place to meet those kinds of people. <laughs> yeah. Um. Honestly, 
the best resource I found is Twitter. And just engaging with people, talking with people, sharing useful information, really. I mean, that's also why I started the blog is sharing useful information for other people is a good way for people to think, oh, this person knows what they're talking about. And I guess at the start, I didn't exactly know what I was talking about, but um, I just kind of, it, it built up over time because then I was able to educate myself. But um, yes, giving people useful information through blogs or articles even just posting articles on LinkedIn actually was how it started I posted uh just a thought piece about how good the localization of Nino Kuni was on LinkedIn and the company that translated it was like hey can we share this do you have a website I was like oh no I don't but that gave me the idea to start the website and then that actually helped me get jobs down the line because of the companies I ended up working for. And so it was like, oh, this is, I didn't, I didn't intend for it to help with networking or with getting a job down the, down the road, but it did end up feeding into that. It's crazy how really, things um, work out like that, right? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> you just don't expect it. Like again, an element of luck. Yeah. Um, but ne- uh, Twitter really has been one of the best uh resources for connecting with different translators i was about to say i i follow a lot of like i don't want to say it's the same circle but i i you know with building our twitter presence we've been you know following people that are our guests but also who they interact with and i feel like i look at certain you know a lot of people and everyone knows everybody it's a kind of a small (laughs) small circle so um yeah have you been able to collaborate or team up with any of the the folks in your network for projects on your own outside of um, your big projects you work on? No, I would love to. I honestly would absolutely love to work with certain people, but I just haven't had an opportunity to. But we do, um, I have a couple of, I have an editor and a translator friend and we have a book club and we meet once every maybe six weeks and we drink wine and we talk about books. And I'm in a translation book club where we talk about translated novels and that's really fun as well. So we, we don't, it, I guess we kind of, I interact with the community beyond work it's not always professional yeah which I think is the best thing to do it because you can there are some people who have contacted me and it's you can tell in the way they message and the way they talk that they're like oh this is what I need to network for a professional not tragedy trying to get to know me as a human being and so I don't interact with those people because I'm like I know what you're after (laughs) I know what you're (laughs) after too it's it's a fine line to walk right you know it's, mm-hmm. it's like you want to be professional but you you also <laughs> don't want it to be looking like you're just fishing for yes. you know fishing yeah. for their their knowledge without actually wanting to develop that relationship that relationship building is definitely something mm-hmm. i've learned along the way just in, in the it world that i work in like just mm-hmm. you have to build those relationships with people if you really want to sustain mm-hmm. having that network that you have that's awesome and it take it takes time as well you can't just ask, "Hey, how do I become a translator?" You have to do you have to do a lot of legwork yourself, yeah. research, and then you can ask professionals, "Hey, what do you think of this? I tried this. Can you give me some advice?" And then we're always helping each other out as well professionally. Um, I'm in a few discords and translation discords, and people are always helping each other out. Yeah, I feel like the the asking of how to do it is the easy part it's actually doing it is the hard part so I can Mm -hmm. totally understand that um and then when you were talking earlier about how like you know 
you thought you needed the education to do translation, so you went back and got your master's. Um, you know, what do you feel are, I mean, you have a very unique situation, I feel, probably. Um, but for someone who is interested in this line of work, um, you know, what would you maybe suggest from your experience? Like what, um, what employers are looking for? Like, are they looking for that education or are they more looking for like work experience? They are definitely working, looking for work experience more. But the problem you have is how do I get work experience when you won't give me a chance? Like, how do you get your foot in the door? And education is often a really good, but very, very expensive way to get that foot in the door. You can find education for translation that is not um, not a master's degree. Like I, after my MA, I moved to ended up moving to Seattle in Washington, and there, there's a college, Bellevue College, has this amazing program that is designed for adults who have full time jobs. So all the classes are in the evenings, where they train you. They train your translation skills, translation ethics, how to use um, turn-based management systems and computer-aided translation tools. And then you learn how to actually translate from your paired languages. So the first like core modules are all monolingual English based only on skill building. And so it's a really, really, really good program that teaches you how to translate ethically and well really and then you can use that to network with your classmates and so and that program only cost a couple of hundred dollars per class like you're paying tens of thousands of dollars for an ma or you're paying like maybe two thousand dollars for this evening class that's aimed at adults and that was a lot more valuable and cheaper so you don't have to do a master's degree in order to if you want education in translation the trick is obviously finding those schools. Yeah. And the most frustrating part too is like you said, the financial investment that goes into like secondary education or even, you know, beyond the bachelor's degree, you know, it's so expensive and time consuming, mm. but also sometimes I feel like you're paying for the little letters that you put behind your name. Then, yes. <laughs> it, you know, like that opens the doors. Oh, you have a, you have a master's on your degree, on your resume or your CV okay, you're, you're much more qualified than this person that doesn't. You know, it's, it's that perception that you're paying for. But when mm -hmm. you have those programs out there, it's that are so much more beneficial to the profession you're trying to get into. Um, you would hope that they put, that, put weight on those types of uh, programs as well. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think they do. And I guess it really depends on how you present yourself as well. Like writing resumes, writing cover letters is a huge part of selling yourself as a professional again i think uh blogs can help a lot with that because it conveys that you know what you're talking about without having the fancy degree and so many translators so ma i think the majority of translators don't have degrees of professional trans translation education like they learned on the job they learned from their mistakes they learned from other people and i think that's so important as well like you don't need an expensive master's degree. I'll I'll vouch for that. Yeah, I'll definitely vouch for that because um with my job, you know, I kind of like you, Jen, like I had my blog. That's kind of how we met was we were blog buddies. Mm -hmm. uh, and we uh exchanged blogs and we worked on each other's blogs and stuff like that. And uh 
when I got my job, you know, I put my blog on my resume and it was like an unofficial, official way of saying, hey, I know a lot about Japan, so I should have this job, <laughs> even though I didn't have a master's in like Japanese I don't know, literature or something, um, anything. Um, I just had a regular bachelor's degree and then had this blog that I was working on and it seemed to work just fine, honestly. Yeah, because it shows you a, a, a level of passion as well. Yeah, like, Passion definitely. is so important. Yeah, like even my boss asks me here and there, are you still writing on your blog? Like she always asks. So I mean, obviously it did something right. <laughs> um, For my next question for you, which I think is an interesting question myself, because probably like years ago when I was like, just not, I don't know, I guess I didn't research well enough, but I kind of got this stuff confused as well. But like the occupation of being a translator versus being an interpreter a lot of people get those two confused. Um, um, so for the sake of everyone, um, all of our listeners uh, listening to this podcast, you know, could you briefly describe the differences between the two? And then also tag along with that, why you yourself chose to be in translation over being an interpreter? So I think, yeah, one of the biggest things you see online is someone goes, hey, I'm looking for a Japanese to English translator for this event. And you get a bunch of people applying, being like, hey, I translate, I translate. And then they're, oh no, they're looking for an interpreter. Um, but because again, of, of the misunderstanding, they have the wrong people saying, hey, I can help you. And that doesn't help either party. So a boil, a very, very loose definition would be a translator works with written text and an interpreter works with speaking. So. But when you when you have an in, when an interpreter interprets, you often say that they're translating because it's just how English works and how people's interpretation of language works. Um, so you can say, "Oh, this interpreter translates this person for me." But really, the correct terminology should be they're interpreting. So, yeah, it is. It is frustrating when you see that happen because you're like oh no I'm really sorry but you're looking for an interpreter can you try this again because otherwise you're not going to get what you're looking for um but again I mean most people don't know that and I think you have to give them like you know everybody learns somehow um but actually I didn't want to be a translator but I always wanted to be an interpreter wow really <laughs> yeah the first time <laughs> The first time I went to Japan, um, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I love this country. I love working with people. I love like talking. I actually don't love talking um, about me, but I love talking about other people and about other things. So I'd love to be an interpreter. And so actually I've been working towards um, interpreting for several years now. I feel like the, there's, being an interpreter is so intimidating because you have to be like on the spot. Whereas at, le at least with translation, you can mm -hmm. consult, you know, books or other literature or, or a colleague. Whereas interpretation on the spot interpretation, at least is if you mess up, it's like, that's like, Oh man, uh, hold on. Let me take that back. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the pressure. Yeah. One of the best things, cause the Bellevue college has a, has an interpreting and a translation mm -hmm. um, courses. So I, I took both as far as I could. 
And one of the best things that interpreting teacher said was because she's a legal interpreter and so she said that as a part of her oath is she promises to translate to the best of her ability Ah. or interpret to the best of her ability and so that's all you can do is you can interpret to the best of your ability and if you you hope a major mistake doesn't happen but if you don't get everything it's not the end of the world as long as you can convey the message right yes and I mean, I've yeah. I've interpreted it like two events and I'm pretty sure I, I made horrible mistakes. There was one where I completely blanked on like a really, really simple word because I wasn't expecting it. And my brain was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it ended up despite the hiccups, it ended up working out in the end. And... When, when you're when you're interpreting, do you, are you a listen to everything and then just process and go or are you a note taker? Oh, no, no, note taker, note taker, note taker. I cannot. I can I can't just okay. do it off the top of my head. My brain does not work that way. Yeah, Short term memory is terrible. I see people that do that. Oh my god, it blows my mind. I'm like, I gotta sit there and take notes. But my then at the same time, I'm taking notes and then I don't hear the rest <laughs> of it. So I'm not I'm not a good note taker. So I don't know. I, that's why I never want to be. That's an why actually for interpreting you do need training because it helps to have somebody go through and tell teach you the core skills of like how to listen and make notes and keep track of everything. At the same time, like the teacher showed us this amazing interpretation between, I think it was President Obama and, and somebody else. And the interp- and like he's talking for maybe five to ten minutes and the interpreter is making notes and then he stops. And after, after ten minutes, she then conveys everything. And it's like, that's like really, really high level, probably 20 years of experience. Yeah, I, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> so you were saying how you did about two interpreting uh, jobs. Was that before you made the decision to be a, a translator or was that after the decision to be a translator? Because I'm just trying to figure out where at the same time. Okay. Uh, it was at the same time. <laughs> so I was, it was when I was freelance translating and I was taking these interpreting classes um, to kind of build up that skill because I thought it'd be a, a helpful skill to have. And then um, a, a friend contacted me and said, hey, uh, this person's looking for an interpreter for um, it was LA Anime Expo, which actually worked out because that was the same time I took my interview at the um, at one of the game companies because they had an office in LA. And so I went for an interview there while I was also at this event interpreting. <laughs> and so they've those events have mostly been volunteer work at, at conventions, like interviewing, uh, interpreting, interpreting for, yeah. yeah for, uh, I know all about that. I actually got offered that same exact position, but not at Anime Expo. It was at our local convention, MechaCon. But uh, I had to nix it because I was like, I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so were those experiences good for you? Like, I, I, oh yes. Okay. Did did it push you in a direction one way or the other? Like, was it like, oh, I didn't enjoy that as much as I thought I would, and then I decided to go to no. translation, or was it, or did it leave a door open for you? It, in my in my mind, translation and interpreting go hand in hand, okay. at least for me. Like, obviously, you don't have to be an interpreter if you're a translator, um, but they're just useful skills to have, especially working in house for a video game company. Having somebody on the team who can interpret is really really helpful, 
And so I want to be, I want to get to the point where I'm one of those people where they're like, oh, we need someone to interpret for this. Can you help out? And I'm, I'm starting in my company now to have more opportunities where I can do that. Um, obviously not in any big events, but internal meetings with maybe overseas clients or something like that. So, yeah. Well, that that's a good segue mm-hmm. to my next question, actually, is uh, for your occupation, you know, what is ex- what tasks are expected of you? And what are some of the challenges that you may face as a translator? So my role is a uh, localization director which is kind of a mix between a translator and a project manager so it's a little more involved where i'm managing projects and i'm managing um translators of other languages while also helping to translate emails and maybe promotional information it it honestly depends on the day it's so varied when i was working as a freelance translator it was just i get sent the original Japanese, I translated it into English, I send it off and I never hear back. But working in-house is a lot more involved. I'm working with people. I'm constantly talking to the editor about, hey, do you think this is the right wording for this? What do you think of this? Can you check this for me? And so I, I, I really, 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 really enjoy working in-house because I can work with a lot more people. Again, I, that's why I wanted to be an interpreter is so I could work with people and not be a little freelance translator island where I don't talk to anybody for weeks on end. Um, honestly after a year of freelance translating I was going crazy because I was like I need I need social interactions (laughs) did did um COVID change how you how you and your colleagues worked did you always go into an office or was there some like remote aspect always incorporated into your job um I actually changed companies halfway through COVID yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah I left I left one game company I went to another and uh so when I went to the the new one there was already restrictions in place. So we weren't allowed to go out for lunch together in large groups. Um, there are partitions between all the desks. Um, social distancing is obviously still important. So most of my interactions were over chat. When the numbers were lower, we did go out for a couple of drinks and that was super awesome. But now the numbers have gone up again. So it, it has made it a lot more difficult to interact outside of work. But I think whether we'd be working from home or whether we were working in the office, okay. most of communication would be over chat. Because I was going to say, like, is it is it something where, you know, do you guys, it, since if, if you had gone into a, from a in-person to a remote setting, would you do like Zoom calls or something like that to like to talk over projects and kind of like put scope and, and design like a plan and all that stuff? Is that something you would do typically or? Uh, if we were, I, there was one point where I was working from home at my last company and we were doing daily zoom chats partially as a way of not going stir crazy i think also as a way (laughs) for the company to make sure that you were at your desk um yeah because for some reason they're really untrusting of people working from home even though when you're in an office you often see japanese people like asleep at their desks i was like how is that different it's all about the the visibility right yeah you're physically (laughs) present Yeah, they need to, you don't have to be there working, but you have to be there. Yes, it's really annoying. It's like, I could be so much more productive. It reminds me of Jet. I would be sitting at my desk some days for seven periods. Oh, we canceled your classes. We had a preparation for the Undokai. And I'm like, oh, okay. Thanks for telling me in advance. So I'm just like, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I sit there and I just study Japanese. And I'm like, well, it's not, it could be worse. I'm getting paid to study. That's great. <laughs> 
um like what would be the job requirements depends on the job i think i think that's another thing is that every single company is different if you uh at least the so i i did a talk for the japan association of translation last year earlier this year i don't remember time is weird <laughs> and um i was i was representing the entertainment special interest group and a lot of entertainment translators freelance and then they some sometimes they'll go in-house but um the guy modding it was i think a technical translator and he said that's really surprising because in every other field you work in-house for the goal of then going freelance so but within entertainment translation um i think if you're freelancing you need obviously a very solid understanding of japanese but also a very solid understanding of english and to be able to convey the japanese in a very natural sounding way uh i think that's that's very difficult for a lot of beginner translators who tend i mean i also did this when i started was stuck a little too close to the japanese wording and so the english would sound weird but i was like well that's what the japanese says so obviously that's okay and it it is okay for like some manga publishing companies but when you start to move into games that's where you go into more of a we're looking for entertaining and natural sounding english and so having the skill to be able to write really good english is very important um i'm not sure if i'm correct i mean you and i have known each other for years so i i kind of like I sort of have like this timeline in my head of like all your work but you did at one point do translating for manga correct mm -hmm. yes okay yes. good making yes. sure i got that right because i swear i i could have like remembered you saying that you did that um yeah when i freelanced i mostly translated manga and i did a little anime and a little um a few light novels as well yeah i think i remember one of the light novels that you did um but um but now that you're doing the local localization for games um you know, what are the differences? Are there any differences, honestly, versus, you know, translating for manga versus, you know, translating for games? I know you said that maybe like the way you would translate it would be different, but like, are there any other differences between the two or do they kind of like coincide and go together? They, they coincide and they don't. Like there's definitely an overlap between all of these. Um, just because it's all entertainment and so it's all, but um, with game, okay, so some people misunderstand localization as quote unquote creative translation. But within the industry, localization actually describes translation, editing, translating into different languages, um, graphics, because you have to change graphics from Japanese into other languages, uh, sound, sound checking, um, the QA. So, so localization within the industry, at least within game localization, describes the overall process of taking a game from Japanese into other languages. It's not just, quote-unquote, creative translation. Um, but I think some people interpret that way because they only see the English. They only see the final product, so they don't see all the work that goes into it. Um, so game localization definitely... I think if you were freelance, you'd be hired to just translate the... Japanese into English and then send it back and maybe depending on the company have a little back and forth where you can edit or check implementation but most of the time you just get the text out of context translate it and send it back um, and then somebody else will see it in context and fix it and edit and 
um, improve it. Whereas working in-house, translating, you, you translate and then you see it in game and then you tweak it and then you see it in game again. And then somebody else, because they're basing their translation on your English, go, hey, this doesn't make sense. And you're like, oh, yes, that doesn't make sense. Let me reword it. And so it's a lot more of a, a polishing process rather than just translate and send back. So do do they translate you do do you you had mentioned like translating from your english are you translating to other languages based off the japanese or the english translation depends on the project me okay. personally i don't know any other language um yeah but uh like the last project i did it was based on the english and so other translators based their translation on my english who, who determines that is that the the company or the game game producer it's the it's probably a collaborative effort between the director and the localization department okay sort of saying hey this is how much it would cost if you did it this way this is how much it would cost if you did it this way and so it's sort of a there is a level of prep before localization even starts of coordinating hey what languages are we going to do how are we going to approach this and so it's it's normally a game localization can go on for several years before they even come out and most companies tend to now simultaneously release the original Japanese with the other languages. And so the Japanese needs to be in somewhat finished state before localization start. It never is. So they're always changing things. So then obviously all the other languages need to change to match it. Do do you, um, is there ever an op- ever a reason or a chance or some, or it, it has, does it ever happen where you have someone that is targeting for uh, for localization projects? Are you targeting like, countries like different english-speaking countries and and producing different content like if you're contextualizing something and do you have maybe someone that's like like a british person targeting like the british audience versus an australian audience versus an american audience um you know when you have to put some of those things into context for those cultures is that is that something that you see a lot too or is it mostly just like english and they just kind of put everything in like a, a one bubble mostly yeah, mostly it's just English. Okay. But we still have to take in consideration how different cultures will interpret the language. Like, let's say you use the word fanny. And in American English, that means but. But in British English, that means... <laughs> something else. Something else. <laughs> something else, which is a little more rude. And so <laughs> it's like, oh, well, we probably can't use this word because it could be used out... Of, it could be interpreted out of context in this culture. But you can't, like, release a British edition and an American edition anymore like they used to do that but it's just not feasible common cost wise yeah Yeah, it's not as common and it's the same with like Spanish is the big one because you have uh European Spanish Mexican Spanish South American Spanish and then even within South America it changes depending on the country and so you have to decide really early on what, what kind of Spanish are we translating this into what impact will that have on the game? Like, how how are we going to handle this? So that's the kind of things you need to consider. That's cool. Yeah, it's really good fun. I love the challenges that come up with these kinds of projects. Yeah. So with, um, you know, obviously to be a translator, you have to be proficient in Japanese, right? Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the number one prerequisite. Um, but, uh, you know, some of your methods of studying, uh, how did, what approach did you take when you were learning Japanese? um did you were you more of a textbook learner or did you learn more out of out of the textbook like maybe through 
Um, some people like to mm-hmm. immerse in learning. We had a, a, a guest previously on our podcast um, that, that specializes in that approach. Um, what, what, what was your approach to studying Japanese? I did try, tried everything. Um, I've been studying Japanese for probably about 14 years now. So, and I found out when I was 25 that I'm dyslexic, which explains a lot. Um, so I honestly, I've studied, okay. So for me personally, I think I'm an auditory learner and a kinesthetic learner. So I learn best by working with teachers and by doing and interacting, which is probably why I always gravitated towards interpreting and towards speaking Japanese more than writing and reading. Um, because I guess I struggled with that without realizing that I was struggling. And so personally, I found studying abroad in Japan at language schools and working with teachers incredibly helpful. But now that I'm at a certain level of proficiency, I use, I read novels, like ridiculous amounts of novels, and that has been an amazing way to learn. It's a very slow process because I forget things all the time because of my dyslexia and I'm a slow reader. But it, it's, for me personally, I think it's definitely helped a lot to actually use the language. I guess it's sort of immersive, but because I'm married to an American, we speak English all the time. So it's not as immersive as it could be, <laughs> but that that's fine. It works for me. Yeah. yeah. When, when you're, when you were reading novels uh, in Japanese, do you, like, if you come across a word you don't know, do you, stop and look it up or do you try to just keep reading and then try to get context to define what that word is and then maybe you get to the end of the paragraph and you're like okay I still have no idea what the hell they're talking about uh, then look it up <laughs> is that is that how you approach it or because I know when I tried doing that initial reading in Japanese I was stopping and checking things all the time and I just found it it took away from the experience and really it mm-hmm. became a chore more than mm-hmm. and you know something enjoyable I think it definitely helps to be enjoyable. Um, I enjoy looking up the words so that I, I don't have issue with that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is a really cool word. I wonder what it means. Um, so because I, because I enjoy it, I like looking up the words. But if I feel tired or I'm being really lazy, I won't look up every single word. It really does depend on my mood. Like I've, I've learned over the years to trust how... I feel and to trust my gut and not to do everything the same way every single time or to do what people say. Cause you get people who are like, Oh, you should do this. Like I've learned to ignore those people and to kind of yeah. go my own flow. So I tend to look up words unless I'm feeling really lazy. Yeah. You know yourself best. Just trust, trust yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, your process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would like to kind of paraphrase one of your Twitter posts because I saw it a few days ago. And I was like, that's so true. You know, you as a translator and, you know, a big misconception is probably like, oh, you're already working in translation. You've done interpretation before. You must know the, you know, must know the language really, really well. You're done. But on Twitter, you posted, you know, I'm not done studying. You know, I always have to try to put in some kind of effort to keep my Japanese Mm -hmm. going. Um, I really like that Twitter post that you did because, it's so true. Learning never ends. You can always learn mm-hmm. something new, especially with languages, because language is always growing. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you do in your, because, I mean, you said you passed N2. I don't know if you took N1, but you probably could pass N1 if you wanted to as well. Um, you know, what are 
what other kind of methods of studying do you do at this advanced level? Um, Because we've had language episodes on our podcast where, you know, we had a teacher come in to explain like beginner level kind of learning. Then we had another guest with immersion level kind of learning for like probably intermediates. And um, for so for you, for advanced learners, you know, what um, advice could you give advanced learners? I think definitely. So so for, for just for clarification, I have not passed the N1. Um, I think partially because, again, <laughs> dyslexia is just really annoying yeah. and I can't get through those reading sections fast enough without making mistakes. Um, I understand <laughs> completely. <laughs> that was me with, they have American like standardized tests with the ACT is what they call it. The one that they focus on in the South is the ACT. And they had reading and it was always the one that dragged my grade down because I just read, I I read slow too. So I can totally relate to being a slow reader. I I read for every Mm -hmm, detail mm -hmm. of the sentence, not just quick reading, right? So it would always drag my score down. I do really good in other other areas, but that reading section was just, you know, like all the way down at the bottom. Yes, I totally, totally get that. Yes, it's annoying. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. I, don't worry. <laughs> I understand. I was diagnosed with dyslexia at the second grade level um, because my parents were really concerned about why I wasn't getting good grades, I guess. Um, so I totally understand that. Um, and actually, manga helped mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. a lot uh, with my reading because I wouldn't read regular books. Like, I refused to. It was just so intimidating. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand, like... I guess like my eyes would get cross-eyed or something just reading all the text. Like you read on it, one but page. it won't go in your head. You know, like oh, I gotta exactly. reread so that. Yeah. When, so when I got manga, you know, manga it's like panels and it's spaced out, mm-hmm. so it worked perfectly for me. Um, but so I can totally understand why uh, it could be a challenge for you. You have my so sympathy. Had, thank you. <laughs> I've. Oh no, I've actually lost count. I think I've failed the N1 like four or five times now. <laughs> the last time I took it, I failed by one point. I was like, no, ah, I was so close. But I feel like what Doug said, the JLPT, I feel is kind of like a standardized test. Like yes. just because you <laughs> it don't really pass, is. it doesn't mean like your level of Japanese isn't up there. No, exactly. It does. It isn't reflective of your own skills. Definitely but I not. just, I find the JLPT very motivating to make me study. Yeah. Ah, and I think, then there you go. Yeah, so I personally, even though I failed it, I really enjoy taking the exam because I guess I'm a massive masochist. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to get to that reading section, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Love that reading section. But um, saying that I, I'm taking it again this summer, hopefully it doesn't get cancelled, um, and hopefully it's safe. Um, <laughs> but I'm taking it again this summer, and I think at this advanced level, I found... Like I said, reading, just reading novels, like it, um, it was really intimidating at first. And again, when I started, I have to look up every word and it probably took me about two months to read one book. Um, but as I've read more and more and more, it's actually increased my reading speed. I think it's definitely helped my JLPT studying. And I think studying on the side as that's well great. helps at an advanced level, because like you said, there's a point where you're like, oh, I'm a translator. I don't need to study anymore. I've made it. But you you still forget a lot of these advanced vocabulary or kanji maybe you've never studied before and you're like, I kind of know what that means, but I don't really need to remember it. But I think if you want to improve even further, actually taking the time to study every now and again um, is a really big help. And 
once people study finish studying or finish passing the N1, they tend to move on to the kanji kente in order to keep studying and keep learning new things. I don't think you need to. I guess it depends on what you prefer. But um, yeah, mixing mixing studying advanced level Japanese alongside novels is great because all those advanced words and advanced kanji tends to pop up in novels a lot as well. So it's a good way to kind of yeah. expose yourself to the language while also having fun. One day I'll take the N1. I I, I barely got the... That's awesome. I barely got the two. See, I, I did the old JLPT mm-hmm. when it was only four levels and I got like level two by 0.5 points. Like I was like 0.5 away from failing. Oof. I just barely got it. Because again, the reading section on the Japanese test also sank me just like the ACT. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I did good in the grammar and the kanji and all that fun stuff. But yeah, reading was just <laughs> like... But uh, yeah... One day. One day. It's, it's, you can't take it locally. It's You have to like travel to like Houston or, uh, or Tennessee or somewhere. So it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, for us, you can't take it in Louisiana. Um, usually wow. Louisiana yeah. people typically go to either Texas or Nashville, Tennessee yeah. to take it. Wow. Yeah. And you can only do it once a year as well. Yes, correct. Right. Yeah, you can only do it during the winter, <sighs> yeah. December. No pressure. Yep, no pressure. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, before we close off this interview, um, I kind of wanted to give you the opportunity to pitch any of your social media that you would like people to go check you out on uh, or follow. Sure. Uh, you can find me at Jen Translations on Twitter, J-E-N Translations, or um, jentranslations.com, but there's a hyphen between the J and the N because it's Japanese, English, Jen, anyway. Bad joke. Um, <laughs> no, I like that joke. I always <laughs> like it. <laughs> or um, I also have J Talk Online, or on Twitter it's Japan Talk Online for Japanese learning stuff. That's where I post a lot of my Japanese novels that I've been reading. Um, and yeah, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, definitely go go follow her. She she posts all the time. Great resource. Um, <laughs> if you're really into Japanese language, you really need to follow her. She she knows what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that, that's what everyone thinks, at least. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you sharing your experience and translating. Um, I like I said, you know. When people think of trying to get a job in Japan or regarding Japan, you know, the first thing that you do think of is the language teaching, like teaching English. And, you know, it is a good start, but a lot mm-hmm. of people want to kind of expand their um, their profession into something else more than that. Um, so I think this is a good way for people to understand um, the world of translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, teaching is definitely a good way. I know so many teachers who are now in game localization, like, and it's definitely a lot easier in terms of finding work in Japan than my method of "I'll oh, just wing it," because <laughs> I, there's a high chance I would have never been able to live in Japan. Yep. So but there you go. I'm glad, I'm glad. I hope people found this useful. Oh, it's a hell of a journey you talked about. It's great, and shows yeah. that you can get there if you put your mind to it. You know, and luck. And luck. <laughs> yes. and, luck. and luck. And not LinkedIn. Course. and that's it for this week's episode thank you so much for tuning in to the crew of japan podcast in today's episode we talked about translation work especially in the realm of manga translation and localization of video games 
we encourage you to learn more about translation by interacting with the online community that our guest Jen was talking about. Yeah, let us know if you enjoyed our episode. Um, you know, feel free to give Jen a follow. She mentioned her Twitter accounts on on the interview. Uh, give her a follow. Check out her blog. And, uh, you know, let us know what you think if you really enjoyed this episode. And if you would like to hear more about um, other translators in this industry, we'd love to share some of that content. Or if you have any suggestions, we'd love to share that as well. Um, we're on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram is K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, Crew of Japan Podcast. And Twitter is just simply Crew of Japan, K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N. Um, while you're there, give us a follow, subscribe, all that fun stuff. We have links in our bios. Check out our all of our other guest links that we have listed in our link tree. And enjoy. Give us all the feedback you want. We love to have comments and questions and things that come out. So uh, that's going to be it for today. And until next time, see you then.